Mark chapter nine, beginning in verse 14. And when he that is Jesus came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them immediately when they saw him and all the people were greatly amazed running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit and where wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has it been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him down both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. And when he'd come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Remember, Jesus has been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is going to begin his journey to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he will be arrested, he will be convicted, he will be imprisoned, he will be tortured, he will be killed, he will come back to life. On the road, the disciples still have many lessons to learn, and the chapter begins with a confirmation as hope as Jesus reveals his identity on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's joined, Jesus is joined by Elijah and Moses as pictures of the law and the prophets that point to Jesus. Now Jesus will present a powerful demonstration of faith. While Peter, James, and John have been privy to the witnesses of the remarkable transfiguration, the other nine apostles have been at the base of the mountain where a crowd has gathered and an embarrassing situation has been taking place. A distraught father has brought his demonized boy to be healed. And the disciples have been unable to cast it out. Even though Jesus has given them Power In Mark chapter 3, verse 15, if you've been following along in the text, in chapter 3, verse 15, it says, 
In verse 14, he says, then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and cast out demons. He reiterates that in chapter 6, verse 7. He calls the 12 to himself. He appoints them and gives them power. The apostles and disciples are unable to deliver the boy. And we as Christians understand something. That Jesus just doesn't come into your life and that's the end of it. He, the Bible says that he goes and if he goes, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And if he goes, he's going to prepare a place for you. And if he goes, he's going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to be with you. And the Holy Spirit is going to be in you. That you've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness and the knowledge of the Savior. You've been given everything that you need, not only to experience what it means to be born again, to walk in love and walk in truth. You've been born again and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that you can live a life that is honoring and pleasing to him. We as disciples of Jesus are to grow from immaturity to maturity. We've already learned that suffering leads to glory in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, through uh, chapter 9, verse 13. And we're about to learn that spiritual power, the power to change, the power to live, the power to heal, the power to deliver, is going to come by faith. That is a confident trust in Jesus. And later we're going to discover that service leads to honor when we come to the end of the chapter in verses 30 through 50. Now Jesus is going to deal with the problems of a weak faith and an immature faith and spiritual immaturity. We as Christians are called to live lives of faith and power and wisdom. Faith and power and wisdom come from Jesus. The disciples are experiencing the pain and shame and frustration of failure. The religious leaders are berating them. We know that spiritual immaturity grieves the Lord in verse 19 through 22. We know that spiritual immaturity has to be acknowledged in order to receive God's blessing in verses 23 through 27. The bad news? The apostles have detached from Jesus. And they've grown weak and undisciplined. The good news, you don't have to live a life of weak faith and, and impoverished faith. You can live in power and wisdom. The good news, we can grow up. Spiritual power is available. And so we begin with the problem of immaturity. Look at verse 14. And when he, that is Jesus, came to the disciples, remember, he's coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he's joining along with Peter, James and John, the other nine disciples. He sees a great multitude around them. He sees the scribes disputing with them. We're given a clue to the substance of the debate in verses and dispute in verse 16. He asks the scribes, what are you discussing with them? The religious leaders may have continued the debate on the authority, on the identity, on the message of the Messiah. It could very well be that they were taunting the disciples over their failure to deliver the boy. I thought you were a Jesus person. 
I thought you were a follower of Jesus. I thought you were one of those people who go to church and read your Bible and pray. I thought you were one of those people who God has transformed and changed and given power to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to him. The ministry is indeed difficult when people question or taunt or belittle your authority or your right to even minister. I'm sure that people have said to you, what gives you the right to tell people that Jesus loves them? What gives you the right to say that he'll forgive your sin? What gives you the right to say to them that if you believe the message of Jesus and, and the ministry of Jesus, you get to go to heaven? What gives you the right? Now, once again, the disciples have to rely on Jesus to step in and settle the issue. You know, I get asked a lot of questions. And every once in a while, the right answer is, you know, I think I'm going to turn that question over to Jesus. Let's let him answer it. Let's let him say what he wants to say. Let him provide the answers that he has provided. And you'll know in verse 15, immediately when they saw him, that is the crowds, All the people were greatly amazed. The word amazed is one of those interesting words in the original language that seems to indicate there is a power and a majesty and authority. Remember, Jesus has just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James and John. There's a glow about him. There's a majesty and an authority about him. There is a power about him. There is a sense that he has a right relationship with God and that when he asks God to do things, things happen. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Now, we've already gone through this, but I need to repeat it for the benefit of those of you who are just joining me. When Jesus asks a question in the Bible, is it because he doesn't know the answer? That's never the reason. Jesus always knows the answer. So when Jesus asks a question, we have to ask yet another question. Why is Jesus asking this question? And I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is drawing attention away from the disciples and to himself. In other words, the moment that he sits down with the skeptic, with the cynic, with the critic, he's drawing attention away from the disciples' failure, and he's drawing attention to himself. And note also who answers Jesus. It's not the religious leaders, but the desperate father of a special needs child. And by the way, when you find yourself in trouble... When you find yourself being criticized, when you find yourself being chastised, when you find yourself being made fun of because of your failure, it's okay to let Jesus step into the conversation. It's okay to allow Christ to come in and say, hey, what is it that you guys are talking about? You'll notice the response in verse 17. Then one of the crowd answers and says, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. The boy was both deaf and mute, we discover in verse 25. He has physical problems. He has physical disabilities. But we also know that he's possessed by a demon. What's interesting, again, about the text, the text offers no 
explanation for how the boy became possessed, but only an expectation that he should be delivered. We're not told about the mystery and horror of evil spirits. We're not told how old the child is. We're not told about his level of ability or inability to respond to either his father or his family or the people around him. What we are given is a glimpse at the power of demons to wreak havoc on humanity. Look what it says in verse 18. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. And by the way, this is the only mention of foaming at the mouth in the Bible. And it's certainly not in a Pentecostal context. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Sin has brought sorrow to the whole human race. Suffering is everywhere. Evil powers are at work. And here is a young person and he's deep in trouble. He's tormented by a demon. And here is a father deeply troubled and tried. And here is the testimony of several people who have tried to help and have failed. Can you imagine the father's going, I brought him to you, but you weren't available I tried to bring them to the bigwigs, you know, Peter, James, and John, but they were with you. So I went through the counseling circuit. I saw Philip, and he wasn't much help. And I saw Andrew, and he wasn't much help. And I saw Nathaniel, and he wasn't much help. And I saw Judas, and he wanted to charge me. He's going through the laundry list. Of helpers who are supposed to to help him. The child is helpless. And the father is hopeless. And the disciples are impotent. What happens? What happens when we as servants of God have no power? What happens when we live a life? A powerless life. And a life of diminished faith. People look at you and they go, wait, 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 you go to church and you're a Christian and you read the Bible. How is it that you suffer from the same problems that everybody else suffers from? How is it that your mouth is just like their mouth and your heart is just like their heart and your circumstances are just like their circumstances? How come you live the same kind of a life as an unbeliever? Well, you know, I've had this problem and it's followed me my whole life. I think you know that no power means embarrassment and shame. That's what it means. No power causes the world to question and belittle and ridicule the gospel and question and ridicule and belittle Jesus. Well, wait a minute. You're telling me the story about Jesus, how he how he saves you and how he delivers you from sin and how he can change you. How he can deliver you. And here's the issue. When the world sees no power and when they see no faith, 
They see no authority. They see no validity in the Bible, in Jesus, and in his power to deliver. The answer, by the way, to no power comes by faith. And you're going to see that it comes by bringing people to Jesus. It comes by praying and fasting. The answer comes by yielding and being filled with God's Holy Spirit. And look what it says, the pain of spiritual immaturity. In verse 19, he says, he answers them and says, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith and unbelief. And you'll notice that in response to the question of the father, he says he answers him in verse 19. Oh, faithless generation. The answer isn't just simply restricted to the father and it isn't simply restricted to the disciples. It seems to include everyone who's listening. Now, remember what I already told you. Jesus has given them authority And power to cast out demons in Mark chapter 3, verse 15, in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And if that's not enough, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, He gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out. You know, if you're wondering, did God give me power and authority? You know, in the opening chapter of John's gospel, it says, and to them that believed, he gave the power to become children of God. Have you been given the power and the authority to know him and to love him and to trust him and to believe him and walk with him? The answer to those questions are all yay and amen. How long would Jesus have to put up with their faithlessness and unbelief? See, he's asking a question. And by the way, remember, when Jesus asks a question, does it mean he doesn't know the answer? No, but it could mean that we don't. Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? What's the answer? Physically, in just a couple of weeks, he's going to be dead on a cross. Spiritually, you're right forever. That same Jesus who will die on a cross will rise from the dead and he lives forever. The Bible says he's seated at the right hand of the father and he will live and be forever and ever. Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you in physical circumstances, moments, weeks? How long shall I bear with you in weeks? He'll be dead. You don't have to put up with a faithless generation when you're dead. But then he's going to come back to life. In order to live forever. Jesus is pointing to the importance of faith. And the reason why he's pointing the importance of faith is he asks the question, how long do I have to put up with faithlessness and unbelief? Now, look what he's saying. He's not saying, how long do I have to put up with your ignorance? How long do I have to put up with your nonsense? How long do I have to put up with whatever it is that you're you're struggling with? This is one of the things I struggle with. On my radio program, I hear all of these commercials and I get so frustrated, not because they're commercials, but that they're commercials for no snoring, hair growing, fat burning. And you just go, really? Is this the audience? Debt reducing. 
Really? What is it about these commercials that should appeal to Christians? The no snoring, fat burning, hair growing, debt reducing commercials. Why are these commercials so important? Why are Christians even a target? Some of us are turning loose and some of us are turning gray. Live with it. But here's the point. Jesus is pointing to the importance of faith. And what is faith? Faith is confidence and trust in him. And look at the end of verse 19. Bring him to me. If your life is filled with turmoil, there's the answer. Bring your turmoil to him. If your life is filled with doubt and unbelief, bring it to him. If you have a weak faith, impoverished faith, bring it to him. What is the answer to sickness? Bring it to him. What is the answer to sorrow and selfishness? Bring it to him. What is the answer to no power? Bring it to him. What is the answer? It isn't bring it to Gino. Now, don't get me wrong. I I am happy. I really am happy to talk with you and pray with you and be with you. I welcome you. You can call me and you have. You can talk to me and you do. But you're going to notice something. That it's going to be my effort to bring you to Jesus for your answer. There might be a reason why, for whatever reason, that I don't quite comprehend. You don't want to go to God's word and you don't want to go to God's promises and you don't want to go to Jesus in order to solve your problem. You might think like this man. We're talking demon possession here. This is not something you can call the radio program on. I think I need some little extra help. Jesus says, bring them to me. And look what it says in verse 20. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, that is, we're not sure if it's the boy who sees Jesus or if it's the demon who sees Jesus. I'm going to suggest to you that this deaf boy and mute boy is rather oblivious to his circumstances. And that he at the beginning of the verse is the demon and he sees Jesus. Look what it says immediately. The spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground. The word convulsed is tear and he falls on the ground. He wallows foaming at the mouth. The picture is a bleak picture. The demon reacts to the presence of Jesus. We know what the Bible says, that God has come so that you could have life and have it more abundantly. But we also know what Satan's agenda is. It's to rob and to kill and to destroy. Satan will present the agenda in a satisfaction of your mind and a satisfaction of your flesh and a satisfaction of your circumstances. But there's always a price to pay. And the price is slavery. But when you bring people to Jesus... When you bring problems to Jesus, when you bring demons to Jesus, they react. Now, again, remember what I've said about questions in verse 21. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? 
And he said from childhood again, is Jesus asking the question because he needs to have a background on this man or the circumstance? I'm going to suggest to you that that's not it at all. He's asking him the question, how long has this been happening to him to draw attention to the desperate father's desperate circumstance? He's trying to get the, the, the person to a place where he will recognize his need and cry out to Jesus. And look what he says. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything. Have compassion on us and help us. The father's pleading with the Lord. Please. Please. If you can do something. If you can help. Do it. The man felt his case was desperate and wandered. Whether or not. Jesus was up for the task. I know there's been times when you thought exactly the same thing. The problem that you're dealing with, the struggle that you've encountered, the wickedness that has been a part of your life from childhood. And you wondered whether or not Jesus could do something for you. You wondered whether or not he could go into those secret places and into those secret circumstances, into those secret compartments of your life. You are wondering whether or not he can be the satisfying solution to the thing that seems to nag you over and over and over again. The man felt his case was desperate. He's wondering if Jesus is up for the task. What is your ailment? And do you wonder if Jesus is up for the task? What treatment does it require? What is it that's throwing you into the fire and what's drowning you in an attempt to burn you or drown you? What is it that's trying to snuff out your life? Is it an ongoing problem with sin? Is it a pernicious addiction? What is it that fills your mind with suffering? What is it? Is it some sort of emotional bereavement? What is it that fills your mind with doubt, with misgiving, with the darkness? What is it that makes you think that your case is hopeless and desperate? What is it that you think that even facing Jesus, even facing Jesus face to face, you wonder if he can make the darkness go away? Do you have faith in God? Do you believe that he's the source of salvation? Do you believe that he has power? Do you believe in his faithful promises? Are you sick? Do you have weak faith? Do you have a powerless faith? And look at the pressure of spiritual immaturity in verse 23. Look at Jesus' response to him. If you can believe. All things are possible to him who believes. Now, I need you to understand the context. Jesus is making it clear that the problem doesn't lie in the ability or the inability of Jesus to make good on the request. The problem centers on the father's inability to believe. The question isn't Christ's strength. Rather, the question is this man's weakness. And Jesus has asked these questions to draw out 
his desperation and his faith. Remember what the Bible says, that without faith, it's impossible to please him. Remember what the Bible says, that those who come to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And when your mind is filled with doubt and darkness and despair and unbelief gathers in your heart and it gathers in your mind and it pushes out the promises of God and it pushes out the presence of God and it pushes out the plan and the will of God. The question isn't whether or not Jesus has the power to lay hold and heal the boy. It, it's whether or not this man has the power to lay hold of Jesus and appropriate the blessing of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the healing of Jesus. I need you to understand the main lesson that Jesus is trying to impart. It is the fact that weak faith and diminished faith and a powerless faith has power when you place your confidence in God and Christ and remember Faith is believing that Jesus can do everything that he says that he can do. And so, again, I want you to think about the words of Jesus. How are we to take the words of Jesus? If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Does this mean, well, I guess I can believe that all things are possible. No. Does it mean that if you that if I right now through the power of faith wanted to turn my hair black as coal, could I do it? Could I grow another head and then think through this problem? Could I go to the moon? You see, part of the challenge is this. We're not to take the words to mean, well, if I believe all things are possible, literally and without exception in this sense. Because that's going to be false hope. I, I want to do an exercise. Well, does this mean that if I have enough faith, I can have unlimited health and I can have unlimited wealth? Does this mean that if I had enough faith that all of a sudden Oprah would become interesting and right? If I had enough faith, would that mean that Jennifer Garner is going to break up with Ben Affleck and marry me? If I had enough faith, does that mean that, 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 that this president is going to become fiscally conservative? If I have enough faith, does that mean that God would cease to exist? If I had enough faith, can I make Mormonism a true gospel? If I have enough faith, can I make a good person go to heaven? If I have enough faith, can I make a lie become true? What do you think the answer to those questions are? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. A wicked and a perverse false gospel has swept through the church and the world. It's been called the word faith movement. It's been called the prosperity gospel. They'll often quote this passage and then they'll go, and now, brothers and sisters, if you can mm, believe it, you can receive it. True or false? It is false. Don't you believe them? It's kissing cousin and philosophical secular humanism. It's called the power of positive thinking. They say, if you can conceive it, you can 
Achieve it. Now, does our mental and emotional circumstances matter? Yes, they do. But can you create your own reality? You can't. That's what people would have you believe, though. What both have in common is both reject the biblical view of God. Both reject the biblical view of suffering. Both are oblivious to the will of God. Both encourage a selfish prosperity that ignores God's will and God's character and God's word. My advice, turn your stinking TV off. Turn the radio off. When people tell you, you can have unlimited health and you can have unlimited wealth, it's not true. Jesus himself will later pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, please take this cup of affliction away from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Paul, three times in 2 Corinthians, because of an affliction, he begs God to take the affliction away. And each time the Lord shows up and he says, my grace is sufficient for you because in your weakness, I will perfect my strength. You see, all things are possible. But they have to be on the menu marked possible. And what is on the menu marked possible? Is it possible that my sins can be forgiven? Is it possible that I can go to heaven instead of hell? Is it possible that I can experience not a weak faith, but a strong faith? Is it possible that I can have power to live my life in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God? What's that going to mean? Later on, he's going to talk about spiritual discipline. You may have wanted to lose weight, and your doctor rightly said to you, you need to exercise and eat right. I don't want to exercise and eat right, but I still want to lose weight. Okay, you don't want to exercise, you don't want to eat right. What do you want? I want through the power of positive thinking to lose weight. I want a magic pill that if I eat that pill, it will make the pounds disappear. You see, people want to have power, but they don't want to submit to the Holy Spirit. They want to have a strong faith, but they're unwilling to exercise the spiritual disciplines, which is separate yourself And then attach yourself to Jesus and read your Bible and pray and join in the in friendship and fellowship with other believers. You see, this is why we keep talking to you, not just to come to church on Sunday. I'm glad you're here, but to to open your Bible on Monday and pray on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. It's to create an atmosphere and an environment where you can grow. The words of Jesus presume God's permission and our obedience. In verse 24, look what it says. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
If you've ever received Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, if you've ever walked with Jesus for any length of time, if you've ever opened up your Bible, if you've ever seen the promises of God, if you've ever seen the commands of God, if you've ever seen the direction that God wants to take you, if you've ever seen these things in the Bible, you have prayed this prayer. You said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We admire the man's promptness and boldness. It says immediately the father cried out with tears. He's expressing the paradox of faith and unbelief. And you know what a paradox is? It isn't things that are that that are contradictory. It's things that are the same that are laid side by side. And how is it possible that you can believe and yet have unbelief in the very same compartment? The man seems to immediately get it. The father of the child cries out and he says with tears. Lord, I believe, but my faith is weak and my faith is shallow and my faith is undeveloped and my faith is immature and my faith is imperfect. But I love my son. I love him more than you could ever imagine. And I want so much for him to be well. And I want so much for him to be delivered. I want you to think it through for just a moment. The man understands that Jesus has expressed a desire to help him. He understands that Jesus has expressed that he might help him or could help him. And I want you to think about the man's response for just a moment. The response is humble and the response is honest and the response is transparent and the response is emotional and the response is desperate. The man must have known something about Jesus. Remember in the earlier passage, he said, I brought my son to you. Is it possible that he's heard about what Jesus has done in the past? He's maybe even seen what Jesus has done for others. It would appear initially he brings his son to Jesus, but Jesus is away. Clearly he's heard about him. He goes to the disciples, but they're no help. It could very well be that with confidence he fully expected these men to heal his son, only to be devastated that they had no power over the unclean spirit. Had their failure shook the man to his core so much so that he thought his son's ailment was terminal, impossible, fatal. I've seen other people go to church and they get well. I've seen other people accept Jesus and I've seen other people read their Bible and I've seen other people seem to have victory over all of the things that I'm still in bondage to. Why isn't this working for me? Now Jesus is here. And something stirs inside the desperate father. He's expressed both willingness and ability to grant his request and heal the boy. And he prays. And by the way, it is a prayer. I want you to think about this. The man prays. Lord. I believe. Help my unbelief. Is the request too bold? Is the request too outrageous? Is the request on the menu marked? 
not allowed? Or is it on the menu marked allowed? And we've already seen that Jesus has said, no, I want to save you and I want to forgive you and I want to heal you and I want to deliver you and I want those things that you are in bondage to to be released. The man prays unbelief and doubt has to be confronted. Now, that's part of the point that you have to begin begin to get to come to grips with. It's your unbelief and doubt has to be confronted. Unbelief and doubt require prayer and the cultivation of the spiritual disciplines of faith and gratitude for God in Christ and God and God's word. Spiritual discipline means that all of a sudden you begin to take prayer seriously, not as a religious activity, but as a way to communicate with God. That you read your Bible not as a religious activity so that you can know what's on the menu and what's not on the menu. It's so that you can understand the promises of God. And so as you read your Bible and as you pray and as you recognize your gifts and as you go to Jesus, not just on a weekly basis, not just on a daily basis, but on a moment by moment basis, then all of a sudden you realize that whatever this is, you can bring it to Jesus. We don't want to give in to our unbelief. We don't want to give unbelief and doubt a home, but we do. The nagging doubts come. The clouds of suspicion and skepticism roll in and it freezes and paralyzes our mind. And then the rain falls in the form of excuses. My problem is too great. The addiction too strong. The bondage too severe. I need you to understand something. The text never calls for an explanation, but rather an expectation that deliverance will come. Our job isn't to understand everything that we read, but it is to apprehend everything that we read. Apprehend means to lay hold of. It means to grab hold of and say, I don't know everything about everything, but I understand that there's certain things on the menu marked aloud. And you know what's on the menu that's marked aloud? New life in Jesus. Forgiveness in Jesus. You get to go to heaven instead of hell. What's marked on the menu aloud is abundant faith. Abundant life. Abundant hope. Those who read the Bible and pray will have much cause to pray this prayer. Our confidence and reason to believe Jesus is broad and solid. We have evidence and proof that this man didn't. You might think, well, the man's right there. There is Jesus. Can you imagine you're going back in time and space and there is Jesus. And there's this desperate man, this honest man, this humble man, this weeping man. And he's saying, look, I believe. Help my unbelief. But what about you? You have. What was his future? 
2,000 years was his future, but it becomes your past. You have in time and space, you know that Jesus is God and man. You know that he rose from the dead. You know that the shadowy future to this man belonged. Tens of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 voices would say, Jesus changed me. He forgave me. He cleansed me. He gave me a new life and a new way of living. We have before us Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the sum of all church history, his ascension into heaven, the testimony of the apostles. We have abundant evidence for 20 centuries that's piled high and wide. And you still pray, help my unbelief. We want to fill ourselves with faith. And then the doubt comes. And the inward contradiction. We're confused and we're frustrated. But look what Jesus does. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Death and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. By the way, the moment that Jesus says it, it is done. Because all of reality, the entire universe bows and submits to his will. Look what it says. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly. That the word convulsed means tore. The implication be, be, being tore in such a way that it looked like it killed him. And it says so in the text. And he became as one dead so that many said he is dead. Did it kill him? We're not told. But it should not surprise you that the demon makes one last attempt to kill the boy. And let me just share something with you. This seems to happen right before deliverance takes place. Right before deliverance takes place, there seems to be a satanic and demonic and conscientious effort to kill you. To kill your marriage, to kill your children, to kill your job, to kill your circumstances, to make sure that if you are going to trust Jesus and bring the problem to Jesus, the demon wants to make sure that it kills you. And sometimes it may seem like Satan has achieved a great victory. But make no mistake about it. Jesus will win. And make no mistake about it. The boy either appeared dead or was dead. But either way, Jesus is going to bring him back to life. And if you embrace the spiritual disciplines, if you decide that you're going to bring your problem to Jesus, if you're going to make a conscientious effort to pray, not in a religious way, read your Bible, not in a religious way, your whole life is going to be different. By the way, if you ever get a chance, there's two books that I would recommend for ladies. It's called Spiritual Disciplines of a Godly Woman by Barbara Hughes. Spiritual Disciplines of a Godly Woman by Barbara Hughes. 
the, for the guys, it's called Spiritual Disciplines of a Godly Man. And it's by R. Kent Hughes. And he's going to talk about some of the things that we're going to talk about in just a moment about spiritual discipline. But look what it says in verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And in verse 28, it says, and when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Why had the disciples failed? Why was there a lack of power? Why was there a diminished faith? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives a more extensive answer in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. In order to answer this question, he includes the comment in Matthew 17, 20, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. I'm going to suggest something to you. That the disciples had neglected the spiritual disciplines. When Jesus went with Peter, James and John to the Mount of Transfiguration, they're down at the bottom of the uh, of the mountain and they're thinking, well, Jesus isn't with us. And because Jesus isn't with us, his power isn't with us and his authority isn't with us and his favor isn't with us. It never occurred to them that the authority that they had received by Jesus was going to continue in the physical absence or the physical presence of Jesus, that that wasn't going to matter. And so they neglected friendship and fellowship with him. They neglected prayer to God. They neglected believing the promises of God. Faith requires cultivation. It requires spiritual devotion. It requires that we grow not cold, when Jesus is absent, when our spiritual fervor is diminished, when our faith is suppressed, when our circumstances are embarrassing, when our enemies criticize us. But that's when you need to go on your knees and that's when you need to open up your Bible and that's when you need to pray. Because guess what? That's the only way that you're going to be able to bring them to Jesus. And so look what it says in verse 29. He said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Some people have disputed the text. But I think that the text is accurate and appropriate in its context. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. In what sense that you're offering some sort of some sort of rote prayer, some sort of of, of prayer that that is uh, some sort of what's the word I'm looking for? Um, some sort of religious expectation that there is some sort of ritual that you can chant, some sort of ritual that you can recite that is going to magically make the demon go away. That's not what prayer means. And that betrays a misunderstanding of the biblical idea of prayer. Prayer isn't magic words that you say in order to make God do what you want him to do. Prayer is friendship and fellowship with the Lord that you love and that the, the Lord that you live with and that the Lord that you obey and that the Lord that you listen to. I'm going to suggest to you that they had grown careless in their disciplines and it's important to stay fresh. It's important to grow. It's important to mature. 
Because you never know. You never know when the time is going to come when someone is going to show up and they're in such bondage and they're going to need your help. And you're going to have to remember the power and the authority that Jesus has given to you. Has Jesus given you the power and the authority to tell the truth about the message of Jesus? Has Jesus given you the power and the authority not only to tell it, but to believe it and to expect others to believe it? Has Jesus given you the power and the authority to say that when your sins are forgiven, they really are forgiven. When you come to Jesus, when you trust Jesus, when you love Jesus, when you walk with Jesus, you can expect all of the power and all of the promises that he has promised. I've told you the story in the past of one of my favorite guys, Harry Houdini. He was born on my birthday. And he boasted that he could get out of any chains, any shackles, any jail. And he proved right. When people would put handcuffs on him, he got out of them. When they put multiple handcuffs on him, he got out of them. He had a boast. I can get out of any jail that you place me in. And he would go from town to town and village to village. They'd make a big deal out of it. The sheriff, the, 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 the marshal, the, the police would lock him up. And within moments, he would be out of the jail. Until one day he came to Maine and he was in a little jailhouse in a tiny village in Maine. And he got out of the shackles very easily and then he started picking the lock and he picked it for 10 minutes and it wouldn't open. And he picked it for 20 minutes and it wouldn't open. And he picked it for an hour and it wouldn't open. And he picked it for two, two hours and it wouldn't open. And at two and a half hours he's drenched with sweat. And at three hours he collapses in exhaustion against the gate and it swings open. Because it was never closed. It was never locked. Harry Houdini was trying to unlock a door that had already been opened. And some of you are trying to unlock a door that's already been opened. Your salvation has been affected by Jesus. Your forgiveness has been affected by Jesus. He's given you grace. He's given you truth. He's given you glory. He's given you promises. He's given you everything that you need that pertains to life and godliness and the knowledge of your Savior. And the satisfaction isn't going to be in naming and claiming it. Oh God, if I just had the perfect person, then my life would be complete. If I just had enough money, then my life would be complete. Let me ask you a question. If money was the most satisfying thing that could ever happen to you, has it been your experience that the richest people are the happiest people you've ever seen? Did you see Donald Trump on TV? You would think if you have hundreds of millions of dollars, you wouldn't look like that all the time. He's always firing people and he has bad hair. Hey... If you thought that sex was going to be the thing that was going to satisfy, don't you think that the most sexually active people would be the happiest people? But do you see sex traffickers and prostitutes? Are they the happiest people you've ever seen? Let me ask you something. If you see them coming up empty handed, if you see them empty and lonely and hurt, 
What in the world would cause you to believe that they have the solution to the emptiness and the loneliness and the darkness that's inside of you? You know what? Confront your unbelief and doubt. You're given permission to pray. Pray the prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You know what? Pray to the Lord. See if there's some specific area that needs changing. Pray to the Lord to give you strength and courage to face the demons of doubt and unbelief. Confess your weakness to God with a humble and a hopeful heart. Submit to God for change and be accountable. Find someone who's a little older, a little wiser, who's gone down the path a little bit further. Don't look for a perfect person. If you find an imperfect person, hopefully what the imperfect person will do is point you to the perfect person, Jesus. And think about how you might join a small group with like-minded believers. Think about how God can use your gifts at exactly the right moment and at exactly the right time. Train to substitute your doubt and your unbelief with faith. Train to substitute your bad habit with virtue. And if you find prayer impossible, then find someone who will pray with you and for you until you can bring yourself to open up your mouth and say, God help me. I so want to believe. Help my unbelief. Remember, the text doesn't offer an explanation. It offers an expectation that you will be free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you. Lord, I know that this passage has gone really long. But Lord, I pray for that man. I pray for that woman who has wrestled with demons, struggled with doubt. They feel like they're a mixed martial artist when it comes to unbelief because they're constantly in the the cage and they're constantly fighting. But again, Lord, I pray. I pray. That we would find those areas in our life that we can submit to you, that we can give to you, that you'll provide the strength and the courage to deal with these things. And that, Lord, in you, we will find a transformation in our hearts and in our lives. So that instead of a weak faith and a powerless faith. We would have the kind of faith that honors you and pleases you and trusts you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.